I'm going to just open up in prayer, and then we're going to hear from Smedley today. So this is a really um, exciting lesson. So I hope you guys are all just bright and cheery and ready to listen. (laughs) I'll just keep talking a little bit until everybody's quiet. It was so beautiful driving in and seeing the sunrise. I don't know if you guys saw the end of it or if you, but when we came earlier, it was really, really vibrant. So, just a benefit of getting up early in the morning. It's like God's little gift (laughs) in the fall. I'm, I'm actually, it's so fun to stand up here and look out and see all of your faces. So you might want to stand up here once in a while and just see what it looks like. It's a different perspective. Um, anyway, I'm going to go ahead and pray because I need God to help me. And I'm going to talk through the disciplines a little bit, which is something that we'll do every time we meet together. So um, this will be your first experience with that. And so anyway, I'll stop blabbling and I'll pray. Dear Lord God, we come here with humble hearts looking to you. You are our salvation and our strength. You're our very present help. And we we are just so thankful, Lord, that we can come to you. We're thankful that you, at the right time, the perfect time, you sent Jesus to earth to live and to die. And you raised him to be exalted at your right hand, interceding for us calling us to his inheritance as your children. What a, what a privilege, Lord, that we can be called your children. We can be adopted into your family. We don't deserve that, Lord, but you give it to us. Help us to live in a way that's honoring to you as we do that. Forgive us, Lord, for the many times that we do what's right in our own eyes, that we turn and we run away from your wisdom and we turn to the world's wisdom lord it's it's um so easy to do we wander back all the time but lord thank you that you give us your words written down and you preserve them for all time there we learned this week that they're never to be altered or corrupted they they can't be and that your words are living and active and they reveal things in our hearts to us and they show us where we are not pleasing you. Thank you for giving us your spirit that helps us to learn and to grow, to learn to love the things that you love, and to grow in living according to your wisdom and not our own understanding. Thank you that we can live in a way that pleases you now and we can say no to sin once we believe and we set our hearts toward you. Um, Father, we're just so thankful that you keep your promises, that you um, do all of these things. Be with each of us here, each one and each one listening. Help us to make our ears attentive and our hearts to be engaged. Help our feet to turn toward you and to your ways. We pray all these things in your precious Son's name, that you may be glorified in them as you, we are changed. Amen. Okay, so 
Um, our, your disciplines and the purpose of Wellspring are written on the back of your notebook. So each time we start, we'll say, flip over your notebooks. We're going to kind of walk through those together. Good morning, Smedley. Um, as I was thinking about the disciplines this past week and thinking about how I could encourage all of us today, I was reading in Proverbs in my reading plan, and so I thought um, that we would go through, it would be helpful to walk through Proverbs chapter 4, that's where our Wellspring verse comes out of, and it was just fun to read that whole chapter and think about the disciplines and how that fits in, so um, go ahead and look at your notebooks, and I'll just read the Wellspring purpose for you, and then we'll talk about that a little bit. So the purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. So last week, we or two weeks ago, we learned that this is an important process, and it takes diligence ongoing care of our hearts but it doesn't stop there it extends out the care that we take to our own hearts impacts those that we see every day and all those that we bump into as we go out um, and as we're part of our body here at Grace Bible Church and as we're practicing our wellspring verse which is Proverbs 4.23 You'll see it there on your sheet, too. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So this, in order to practice and bring about that purpose, to be equipped and encouraged, we have these three disciplines. So I'm going to go ahead and read the first one. Discipline one is the heart. By the end of wellspring, you guys will have these memorized. (laughs) Because we're going to repeat these a lot. So discipline one, the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. So thinking, think about these words. First, we're thinking about a faithful woman. So she's marked by faith. She believes God is who he says he is and that is word or in his word. And she believes the gospel so much so that it is changing her from the heart. Her desire to live in ways that give God glory in every part of her life is growing daily. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who draws near for the one that draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So reminding ourselves of this, these truths are going to only help us to know what to tell our hearts to think and our minds what to do as we, what to dwell on and our mouths what to say. That's what shepherding our heart is. That's what we talked about last time. Um, So this leads us to the second thing that she's marked by. She is a heart shepherder. She brings her heart towards God's word worshipfully Acknowledging God is perfect in holiness and that his ways and thoughts are far greater than any human wisdom and thought, and he's worthy of all praise. So 
it's been fun over the years for me as I read through God's Word to think about these this discipline and then see it played out in God's Word. Um, so I wanted to just point out some things in chapter 4 of Proverbs. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm just I'm not going to like walk, read the whole thing. I'm just going to kind of point through some scriptures and talk about them to kind of help us just think about our hearts before the Lord. <clears throat> so in Proverbs, I was just going Oh, I already said that. Sorry. So As Solomon was instructing his son, he was pointing to instructions that he had received from his father, David, and his mother, Bathsheba. So these instructions had been passed down. Um, The instructions in verse 4 of chapter 4 said that he he should hold his heart fast to his father's words, to keep his commandments and live. Verse 5 said to acquire wisdom... And understanding, so it it took effort. He had to acquire it, so it it was not something that just came on him. Um, he had to turn away, and he was instructed not to turn away from it. Then, specifically, to do that, not forsake wisdom, but to prize it, embrace it, and keep it close. So those things sound familiar to us too. Then look down at verse 10. He goes on and he is to receive his father's instructions in the way of wisdom. Verse 13, he's to seize discipline, not letting it go, to guard it for it is your life. He then gives warnings to stay away from evil influences, wicked men who eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. Their way is like thick darkness, and they do not know over what they stumble. Verse 21, he adds, Do not let your words deviate from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. Incline your ear. So notice how all of his senses are to be involved. The ear, the eyes, the heart. Then skip down to verse 24. He says, Put away from you a perverse mouth. And put devious lips far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead, and even your eyelids be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the track of your feet. And then in verse 27, he says, Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your feet from evil. So then, if if we kind of backtrack the verses I skipped, we see the kindness of the Lord to reward faithful obedience the father wants to encourage the son to look at the benefits of persevering in obedience to these instructions. Um, Look at verse 18. He says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until fullness of day. And then verse 22, um, The instructions are life to those who find them and healing to all of his flesh. And then verse 26b, all your ways will be established. So we saw how this takes guarding and diligence in verse 23, which we know from from our Wellspring verse. So how does this help us? We know from Romans 15.4 in our homework that 
these things are written for our instruction as well. And from Second Timothy, we learned that God's word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We also know that we are living in this time after Jesus has died, been raised, and now intercedes for us at the Father's right hand. And as we see from what Smedley will be teaching us this morning, when we believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, we have his spirit to help us to understand his word and to be able to shepherd our hearts toward his word, which has power to help us and thoughts to help see our thoughts and intentions of our hearts and to submit them under God's will and be able to practice discipline two and discipline three for his glory. So let's look at those last two disciplines together. I'll just read discipline two, the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home, ministers to them with their heart fixed on God and his word. So we see the faithful woman again here. And notice where her heart is fixed on God and his word. She cannot expect to be able to minister to those in her home with her heart looking at any other source. Directing our senses to wisdom and understanding of God's word are the tools that we draw from as we seek to care for those in our homes well. And then it just extends out to those as we step in, out into, of our homes and into the church. So that's discipline three, ministry. So let's read that together. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So we see that unless we are diligent to direct ourselves toward God's word and to put in the effort to spend consistent time in God's word, humbly and worshipfully asking him to show us where we are have hurtful ways in us and where we are walking in our own wisdom then we don't have hope to do be successful as we do that we all know what became of Solomon and even many of his sons as they um, ran away from these instructions and went toward what was wise in their own eyes and so we we have examples of how that plays out. Um, may we, by God's unfailing grace, stay the course as we pursue and look to him to help us. We will be reminding each other of these things every time we meet. It's not something that we arrive at ever because <laughs> we are always in the process of growing and, and seeing things in new ways. God's kind to show us a little at a time. We don't have to just see it all at once. Um, But now we have the privilege of hearing from Smedley again as he walks us through our heart condition before and during and after salvation. So this is a really, um, just a really foundational thing to hear and learn as we start our Wellspring year. Um, after Smedley's finished, we're going to be discuss- uh, dismissed to our discussion groups. 
So if you weren't here last time and you're not sure where your discussion group meets, you can refer to that sheet in your notebook or you can come to Lori or I and we can help you. Um, so with that, Smedley, thank you for being here. And that clock is going to stare at me. What time okay. is it going to tell me to stop? Around, you have about almost an hour. Okay. More. Oh, you've got until eight thirty. Till eight twenty-five. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me here again this morning. I'm going to pray, and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for this morning. I thank you for these ladies. Uh, we thank you for your word and its power. Uh, that it gives hope and encouragement, that it brings conviction, uh, that it informs, that it gives light into dark corners, um, and that it gives hope. Uh, most of all, we love your word because your word reveals you. It is your own self-disclosure. Uh, you know your ways, and you know us better than we know ourselves. And so we thank you for this light, this window into your heart, uh, into the reality of our world, and into the realities of our own hearts. Uh, we pray that you would use it to shine where light needs to shine in Jesus' name. Amen. Who are you? That's the question on the table this morning. John Calvin said, There is no more important knowledge than the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. Do you know who you are? And particularly, do you know who you are uh, through the lens of Scripture, God who knows you better than you know yourself has things to say about you. Are we ready to, to listen and to hear God? I want to give you the conclusion this morning up front. It's like telling the punchline of a joke. Uh, maybe it takes some of the wind out of everything else we're going to do. But I, I, I'll say it again at the end. This is a discipline one message. We're going to talk about a lot of things. In fact, the text of the message this morning is the entire Bible. And I'm going to talk fast sometimes. And there's going to be a lot of information. My goal is not that you would remember everything that I would say. And please don't write down everything I'm going to say. Uh, we have put in your hands a three-paneled blue folder thing. Uh, a trifold informational brochure. I don't know what to call it. Um, and that has the, the texts of Scripture that are pertinent to the discussion we'll deal with today. Um, it informs this. You can go back and use that as a resource. In one sense, just listening today will help you be able to use that trifold brochure to understand what's there. So don't, don't get carpal tunnel syndrome this morning trying to write everything down. Here's the takeaway. Here's the takeaway. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ... You can shepherd your heart. You have abilities. You have capacities. You have resources at your disposal that you did not have before you were a Christian. And you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you who has a vested interest in your becoming like Christ. So Christian, you can shepherd your heart. When you were not a believer, you couldn't. So you can. So discipline one, you can shepherd your heart. The other side of this, if you're a Christian and you are not yet in heaven, which I think applies to everyone in this room, you must shepherd your heart. Because you are still in a mixed condition 
where residual depravity resides in you. God is at work. He's not finished yet. So you must shepherd your heart. Um, we're we're going to talk today about why you can't implicitly trust your heart. Um, all of that becomes really important. So the punchline up front is if you're a Christian in this room, you can shepherd your heart. And if you're a Christian in this room, you must shepherd your heart. Now, when I go to the mall, I am looking for the map. The one that says, you are here. I want to know where I am. And some of you, when you go to the mall, want to know where you are so you know how to get to whatever the thing you're looking for when you're shopping. Uh, unless it's the Lego store or, I don't know, whatever else. It's, oh, Shields. They, they're putting in a Shields at Chandler Fashion Center. Other than that, it's a little bit tough for me. I'm looking for the you are here sign because I want the way out. <laughs> I want to depart. And, and you know how they construct malls. The entrances are through department stores. And there's no clear path from a department store to the hallway or the food court or the Lego store or anything else. They want you wandering about and buying things. So I feel trapped. I want to know where you are. You might want to know where am I for more productive reasons than that. When it comes to thinking about where you are in the scope and sequence of human existence, it is really helpful to know where you are. Okay, what we have up here on the board behind me are four conditions, four panels, separated by events. So, condition one, an event. Condition two, this is an event. Condition three, an event. Condition four. Okay. Um, this is an attempt to put on display the four states of man. And, and I borrow this significantly from a book I read probably 24 or 5 years ago called Thomas Bo- uh, by Thomas Boston entitled Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. The three-panel blue chart that you have is a three-panel version of this four-panel description. What's missing from the blue chart um, is a description of mankind before there was sin. So Adam and Eve in the garden. That's not on the blue chart. Um, but we're going to go back to the garden and talk about what man was originally because I think it helps us understand what's in the blue chart. So that's our task today. Uh, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're in panel three. We'll get there and we'll talk about why you can shepherd your heart if you're in that panel and why you must shepherd your heart finding yourself in that panel. But I hope the whole scope of what humanity is is going to help us get there. Does that make sense? That's sort of the plan for this morning. I'm going to say something that may seem controversial. Are you ready? It is not inherent to humanity to sin. And if you're in the membership class right now, you're like, wait a second, I read the membership booklet. I read the doctrinal statement of the church. I've heard you guys talk about sin, total depravity, universal depravity. It is not inherent to humanity to sin. What do I mean by that? Um, You can be a human and not sin. It's not part of the definition of humanity to be a sinner. Can you think of any examples Did you? No, you're not an example. We, I'm not an example. We've talked about this. Sorry, I can pick on my favorite stepmother-in-law. No, sorry. What were you going to say, Janet? Well, 
<laughs> yes, of course. Jesus is the answer. He is perfectly human, 100% human, and he never sinned, and he couldn't sin, and he can't sin, and he will never sin, and he's human. Ever since Bethlehem, he's human and a non sinner. Can you think of another example? Nobody's going to raise their hand now. <laughs> Adam and Eve in the garden were fully human and for a little while didn't sin. And can you think of another example? Every believer in this room, every believer who has ever existed in the eternal state will not sin, will not be able to sin, will be sinless. And so I just want you to do the math here for a little bit. How long does eternity last? Yeah, that's a sideways eight with an arrow going that direction. Um, Compare that to, I don't know, thief on the cross gets 16 minutes of forgiveness before before his eternity. And maybe you get 68 years on this earth. Um, I don't care what number of days God gives you on this earth. You compare that to eternity and it is a statistical zero. That means for nearly the entirety and statistically for the entirety of your existence, you will be human and not a sinner. It is not inherent to humanity to sin. Now, it is inherent to all of us in this stage of our humanity to sin. That's a different story. We'll get there. But you need to understand, God did not create humanity sinful. Ecclesiastes tells us God made man upright, but men bent when in search of many schemes. So let's go back to the Oh, before we go to the garden, I read to you a long quote from Octavius Winslow two weeks ago. I'm going to read a short quote from him this morning. He says, So far indeed from sin being a necessary element of our humanity... The truth is, we become less human when we became less holy. That's right. The the true picture of humanity is the original and the prototype, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the final installment. That's the true picture of humanity. Everything else is a deformation. Let's uh, let's go to the beginning of our Bibles. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And let's talk about that original. Uh, You can have a poetic song commentary on the original from Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then look at man. Look how great he is. Look how wonderful, etc. That's that's David's song commentary on man's original state in the garden in Genesis 1. Look down at Genesis 1.26. God said... Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Okay, really interesting wording there. You've got a plural pronoun. Who's this our business? Here you have the the Trinitarian God, God and Trinitarian fellowship, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, speaking in conversation and saying, let us make man in our image. God's not saying, hey, angels, four living beings, uh, stars and rings of Saturn, let's make man in our image. There's nothing cosmic like that. This is God alone making man in God's image. And then this statement, let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth 
and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God blesses them, gives them food to eat. A really remarkable picture. Man was created last on the sixth day after everything else was created. Uh, He is the pinnacle of God's creation and bears the imprint of God's character. That's how God created man. Notice the image of God is bound up in male and female, is plural. It's not just Adam that's made in God's image. It's Adam and Eve that are made in God's image. Uh, Adam and Eve's son, Seth, which means image, gets the same uh, idea. Um, And when we get to Genesis 9, even after the fall, all of humanity is said to still be made in God's image. That is why the death penalty is prescribed for murderers. Because... Man is made in God's image still, even after the fall. And notice what's tied to the image of God here. It is rulership. Uh, In the same sentence, uh, let us make man in our image and let them rule. God's kingship and the imprint of his kingship is to be marked by the way man relates to his universe. Uh, mankind is to be a sub-region under God. Uh, the Hebrew text says to put the kibosh on creation, uh, to rule over it and to do so with God's character. Uh, God himself is selfless as a king. Man was in his image designed to be a lord over the earth, but not a tyrant, but good in love, lording over creation. Uh, and, and that applied to man and woman. So think about what it meant for man to be given the responsibilities that he had. Uh, Look down in chapter 2. We find verse 15, Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Notice, to cultivate it and to keep it. Uh, This is before the fall and man has tasks. And then God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a suitable helper. So chapter 2 sort of brings us back and fills in the details of what we just read at the end of chapter 1. How did God bring about uh, man and woman into the Garden of Eden? Um, God says, I'm going to make the man a suitable helper. And then God parades in front of Adam all the animals and says, name them. Right after he says, I'm going to give you a suitable helper. And you just get this tension, this waiting, like, okay, suitable helper. Um, aardvark? Uh, no. What's next? Anteater? You know, whatever all those, uh, all those animals. Um, and, and, and Adam, in one afternoon, gives significant, meaningful designations to the whole host of the kinds of animals. Don't multiply that out to, you know, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Probably not down to the species level, but the biblical level, which probably is closer to genus, which is kind, probably down to the kind level. Maybe he said cat, not cheetah, leopard, lion, etc. But the point is he gives uh, meaningful designations to thousands of kinds of things. Imagine the mental capacity. And at the same time, waiting in tension for this suitable helper. It's not a giraffe, and it's not a duck-billed platypus. 
And what comes out next? God puts Adam to sleep, pulls a rib, fashions a woman. Uh, By the way, our English word woman related to the word man. Um, And I'll make a movie reference here. You may or may not know it. But he says, whoa, man, woman. Okay, there you go. Um, In Hebrew, it's similar. Ish, isha. They're related words. Out of my own flesh, God made the suitable helper. Not one of these paraded animals that's come through. And so all the waiting on God for this moment comes to fruition and Adam sings the first love song. It's just phenomenal. And then they are together in the garden, no shame, no sin. Verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And then you come down to uh, chapter 3 and verse 8. They heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That just indicates a significant relationship of fellowship and immediacy with God. It's, un- it's unbroken. It's wonderful. Um, let's just think through what it would take for Adam and Eve to, to be unmolested by the fall, by sickness, by disease, by degenerative entropy, by genetic defilement, um, what does it mean for them to be the perfect specimens of humanity? And I think you can see vestiges of this in humanity today. Think about the smartest people that that we know of in history. Think about the the best skill sets, uh, the the best physicality. And, And think about all of that funneling back genetically to the first couple that God made. Uh, Since the fall, everything has been a devolution, a slide away from the prototypes. Think about the capacity of of Adam and Eve. What did God give to man? Uh, God gave man speech, the ability to communicate. Day one, (laughs) in the first moments of Adam's life, he's having a conversation with his maker using words which are signs and symbols of transcendent things and he's communicating and it makes sense there's clarity he understands what god says there's give and take um i've never had a one day old i've had five kids i've had them all at one day old none of them had these conversations adam's day one full of conversation brilliant intellect god made him mature and all of this speech is designed by god that we might bless god with our words interact with our maker commune and convene with one another Think about creativity. In the Bible, God creates everything out of nothing. And the Hebrew word for that is bara. And that word is only used of God. Only God baras, makes things out of nothing. But but humanity is creative as well. And our creativity is a little bit different. We take the things that God made out of nothing and we rearrange them. And so something new comes out of the materials at our disposal. A song. Architecture. Art. And these things are just amazing in the capacity of man. You get to the next page in your Bible, Genesis 4, the the table of nations and the expansion of humanity. And what do you find already in the beginning of human history? Metallurgy, musical instruments. You know, the the anthropologists talk about the the Stone Age and the Bronze Age and the what. All of that happened at the beginning. Man had this capacity to dig stuff out of the ground refine it and make it useful and beneficial for the rest of humanity. It's staggering man's abilities. 
Man had a sense of self-awareness and understanding. Man knew that, hey, I have a place in the universe. Man can think about stars and broccoli and dolphins and granite. Granite's not thinking about man. But man's thinking about himself and his environment. Man has a sense of history and destiny. Mankind can look backward at things that have happened and look forward with hopes and dreams. Man has an intellect given for the active appreciation of God. Inanimate objects, vegetative life, animals do not possess a comprehension of God. Although all creation passively glorifies God as long as they exist, they don't actively glorify Him by their intellectual capacity and engagement with Him. Man has been built with reason and rational ability to find connections and make arguments. He's been given a will, that is a capacity to take what he knows and enact it in life. He's been given emotions, a whole palette and range of feelings and sensitivities that actually reflect God's own palette of feelings and sensitivities in order to engage and appreciate the world around him. Man was given a sense of morality, that is an ability to discern right and wrong. Man was given affections, the ability to be affected by things. He was given a capacity for science. That is this embedded curiosity to wrestle with the things around him, to investigate, to turn over stones and see what's there, to do microbiology and astronomy and everything in between. Man was given the gift of immortality. You recognize that every human who has ever existed will exist forever. Broccoli doesn't do that. And then man was given responsibility or lordship. That is a stewardship from God to lord over the created order. And man was given a capacity for adoration. To think transcendent thoughts. Things bigger than himself. We feel this. We are enamored by things that are monumental. Mount Everest. Or some athlete, some accomplishment, some artist, people who have done great things. We are worshipers at heart. All of that was designed by God that we would gravitate towards His infinite greatness and be in awe. Of course, man was given the immense gift of a capacity for relationship to God. Let's think about this first panel. What was life like in the Garden of Eden. If we carry, and I've given you just five categories here. We'll look at all five of these through the states of man. Um, we could put 20 categories up here. We can think about our relationship to lots of things. But let's just start with these five. Um, what was man's relationship to God? How would you describe it? Fellowship? Yep, absolutely. Um, and what kind of fellowship was it? Was it mediated or immediate? It was immediate fellowship. That is, no go-between. We'll talk about some necessary go-betweens later. But man experienced immediate fellowship. Genesis 3.8, God walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day. Okay, What was man's relationship to sin? Yeah, he didn't. But I would say it this way. Man was able to sin. How do we know that? Because he did. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, how would you describe man's relationship to his environment? Um, 
What was it? Dominant authority. Okay, yeah. Uh, dominant, and we mean that in a good way, right? That's not a bad word here. Okay, he was an authority. That's not a bad word here. Those sound like bad words to us now because of what happens next. Okay? Um, and and how did the environment respond to humanity? It was cooperative. Yeah, um, man was to cultivate and keep the garden, and the garden, by God's design, yielded produce. Um, I, I've been in the, the mountain village of Maioro and Papua New Guinea, and it's the closest thing on earth I've seen to something like the Garden of Eden in terms of vegetative productivity. They put a pineapple in the ground, and out grows 100 pineapples. It's just lush. Verdant. You, you can. It seems like you can grow just about anything there. Now they have other challenges. It's not an easy place to live. Uh, but in terms of what was the Garden of Eden like? In terms of just you put something in the ground and it yields fruit. Wow. What about man's relationship to man? Or woe, man. What was it? They were one. They were one. Yeah. There was a unity. What else? Maybe we'll just say it was good. Can we do that? It was good. Um, can you imagine a, a single conversation where your words are not tainted by sin, selfishness, or just misunderstanding? Man, wouldn't that be great? Can you imagine an open, transparent relationship with no sin, no skeletons in closets, no baggage, no history, just joy? Wow. Yeah, no, that's hard to imagine. Okay. Um, what about man's relationship to work? Oh, no, no, no. There was no work in the Garden of Eden because it was perfect. But there was work in the Garden of Eden, right? He had to cultivate it and keep it. He had to name animals. Uh, they were to steward the universe. There was work. But in the garden, work was only fun all the time. I dig a hole in the backyard with a shovel. I'm working. My 12-year-old son would dig a hole in the backyard with a shovel. What's he doing? Playing. What's the difference? I have to. He wants to. Right? Uh, but in the garden, work was only fun all the time. Something happened. Something happened. There's an event right here. We call this event the fall. And right now I know for you the word the fall sounds like a good word. It's like, oh, my, the outside temperature just went below the low setting on my thermostat for the first time in three months. Not that fall. Turn to Genesis 3, the fall of man. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And notice, this talking snake is questioning God's words from the very beginning. Planting doubt. Did God really say that? Man, and he's planting doubt about God's generosity and his purpose. God's stingy. 
He said you couldn't eat from any tree of the garden. She says, no, 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 no. I, I think he said we can eat from the stuff in the garden, but, but we can't touch that one. She's already confused. She's not even repeating God's words right when the snake brings in doubt about God's word. And Adam, where is he? he? He should be protecting. He should be standing up for God. You know, there's only four persons so far in your Bible. If you're reading your Bible from left to right, you're starting at the beginning. You're, you don't know anything else. There are four persons here. There's Yahweh. There's the man. There's the woman. And now there's a talking snake. And we believe the talking snake. And the snake is saying, God is stingy. He's not generous. He doesn't like you. He's jealous of you. He knows that if you eat that thing, you're going to be like him. And you're going to know stuff he doesn't want you to know. Well, it is true. You're going to know stuff God doesn't want you to know. Um, And and I guess it's true we'll be like him in the sense that we'll have a a bigger awareness than we do now about such a thing as evil. Except Adam and Eve, in sinning against God, in believing the talking snake, in taking the fruit, they now know evil experientially. God doesn't ever know it experientially. Although he knew what it was in a way Adam and Eve didn't. He didn't want them to know what it was experientially. <laughs> and now we do. And of course, everything's broken at this point. Uh, they, they hear the sound of Yahweh God walking in the cool of the day. And instead of this open relationship, uh, the man and the wife were together and not ashamed. Everything open. Now, they hid themselves Interesting, they hide themselves from the presence of Yahweh. Could they really do that? No, He's everywhere, every when. (laughs) They can't hide. But they're doing the thing that man does in his sin. Oh, I need religion. I need to make up some covering. Sowing fig leaves so God can't see my heart. I'm going to do some procedure, some ceremony, some man-made thing. That is what man's religion is. It's born right here in Genesis 3. Of course, God sees through it and replaces it with what? How does God cover their shame? Animal skins, death, substitution, sacrifice. An innocent animal gets killed by God to cover their shame. Interesting things going on there. Look down at Genesis 3.14. Yahweh God said to the serpent, and what unfolds next is a series of cursings and blessings... As a result of rebellion. Isn't that interesting in our God? Cursings and blessings. God said, if you eat of the fruit, you will die. What comes next? Well, death, spiritual death has just entered the world. So now everybody is born spiritually dead and we're going to sin out of our spiritual death. Physical death, it's on its way. Decay, demise, devolution, it's all happening at the genetic level, at the organic level. Uh, Universally, The cosmos is now subject to decay. It's now a slave to decomposition. The second law of thermodynamics. Everything breaks and falls apart. Things aren't improving and getting better by themselves. Steel rusts. Things break. Things break down. That's true at the human level. Uh, It's true at the cosmic level. And yet there are blessings here. Listen to what God says to the snake. 
Because you've done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, eat dust the rest of your life. And I will put enmity between you, snake, and the woman, between your seed, your descendants, snake, and her descendants. The word seed in Hebrew is singular or plural or dual. But then notice the singular pronoun in verse 15. He. So this seed could be one or many. But he, singular, shall bruise you, snake, on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Literally, will crush you on the head. Um, You'll crush him on the heel. Uh, So, amazing promise from God. What, What could have happened, should have happened. Adam and Eve, you're done. Done with the experiment. Not making imprints out of humans. Gonna do something else with my time. Or maybe... Try some new humans. Nope, we see here God's grace. There's a curse and there's a blessing. Uh, Similar pattern through all the rest. Notice the the woman's realm is uh, problematic. Um, Childbirth is going to be difficult. The man's realm is problematic. Um, Work is going to stink. It's going to be hard. Work's cursed. Um, There are blessings in and all through these things. Uh, Do you know the seed promise God gave to the snake? By the way, that, that, that has been called the proto-evangel or the, the prototype gospel here in Genesis 3.15. But God is telling the snake that the woman's going to have a seed that will crush him. Of course, we fast forward, we know that's Christ. Eve doesn't know that. She gives birth to a son, Cain, and she says, Behold, I've begotten a man-child, Yahweh, Genesis 4.1. That's what the Hebrew says, literally. I've begotten a man-child, Yahweh. Is she thinking incarnation of God to be the seed to crush the snake it's cryptic and interesting and I think the Hebrew says it I'm not sure how to get into Eve's mind here except there's only four persons by process of elimination if what do we know if we're reading our Bibles left to right from the beginning we don't know anything what do we know about seed so far God already said to them I have given you seed I've given you trees with seed in them producing fruit producing more trees with seed to produce fruit what's a seed oh it comes from that thing it produces more of that thing that's what we know about seeds so far and God says a seed of the woman is going to crush the snake seed of the woman whoa I just had a seed never no one's ever had a baby before and and who's the baby going to be that can crush the snake who's the seed I made in the imprint of God it, what how does this work well um, am, is Eve going to be the of the four persons available is Eve going to be the one that crushes the snake uh, no she's the one promised to have a seed that would um, is the snake going to be the one no it's, it's not him he's the one's getting crushed what about Adam? Could he be the guy? Well, I don't know if I trust him. <laughs> Who's left of the four persons known at this point in the story? Yahweh. Uh, it's not surprising that she would assume Yahweh would come in the flesh as seed to crush the snake. And that, of course, is what happens in the Bible. But she doesn't know it. Cain, it's him. Uh, why is Cain disqualified from being the seed promised to crush the snake? He's actually a son of the snake, according to the New Testament. Kills his brother. Why is Abel disqualified? Because he's dead. (laughs) And then Seth, Adam had another son in his image, in his likeness, named him Seth. Why is Seth not the guy? He's a sinner too. 
What about his kids and his kids and his kids and his kids? You go through the, the, the table of, of generations in Genesis 5, and he died and he died and he died and he died and he died. Uh, one exception, one guy walked with God and was no more. You have an Old Testament rapture. Um, but all these people are sinners, and they die, and they're not the hope. Noah is named Noah because his dad said, maybe this one will give us rest from the curse. In other words, your whole Old Testament is looking for the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the snake. Where is he? Who is he? Of course, this this leads us somewhere. When you think about all those capacities of man, what you see in panel two is just a grievous disappointment. In World War II, we had a problem. Fortress Europe was Nazi Germany. They were going to take over the world. Great Britain was isolated. Uh, You know that in the beginning of World War II, Russia was on the team of Germany. Stalin and Hitler were buddies. Not really, but uh, they had allied themselves against the Brits. Russia was not our ally in the first half of the war. England was alone. And if you've ever had an English friend, uh, they may have asked you, Hey, why didn't you jump in sooner, Americans? And I think they were right. We, we got into the Lend-Lease program secretly. Look, we were tired of World War I. We didn't want to do it again. We didn't want to send our men over there. We didn't realize what was at stake. We left Britain alone. But, you know, we'll secretly send you some guns and some tanks and stuff. And we sent them over by ship, and the ships kept getting sunk. It was said that more than a third of the merchant marine was torpedoed by German submarines and went down to the bottom of the Atlantic with all the stuff. How are we going to get past that problem? One guy came up with an innovative solution. He said, well, instead of taking tanks and trucks and guns over by boat, let's fly them over. Well, that was audacious. You know, the the airplane was invented like basically the day before. And it was like paper and sticks. December 17th, 1903. Orville and Wilbur Wright flew for the first time. And they didn't go very far and they couldn't take anything with them. And now some guy is saying, we're going to fly tanks over the Atlantic in a plane. There was no plane capable. He said, I'll build one. And he built the the biggest, most technologically advanced thing the world had seen to this point. And it had the capability of flying trucks and tanks um, in vast numbers across the Atlantic and avoiding the submarine problem. It's going to save the day. It's going to win the war. Uh, he built the plane. He flew the plane. Uh, it was originally designated the HK-1 Hercules. And it, it, it proved it could do what he said it could. Uh, I, I just recently heard that they originally built it with nails and then pulled the nails out after the glue dried um, in order to save weight. 80 tons of nails came out of the thing. It's massive. Um, Of course, you know that that airplane never flew a single tank or a gun or a truck across the Atlantic to help win the war. It got tangled up in arguments with Congress and defense spending, and the guy was arrogant, and and the congressman didn't like him and thought he was arrogant, and so they didn't want to order the airplanes, and so they only built one. It flew one time, and then it has sat in the museum ever since, perpetually in flying condition. Anybody been to see the Spruce Goose? It was built by Howard Hughes, and Howard Hughes was like his airplane. Brilliant, genius. Had the world seen anybody like this before? He could come up with and do anything. Man, this guy 
What incredible capacity! The spruce goose never lived up to its abilities. And Howard Hughes did not live up to his abilities. As a man, he lived like his airplane and squandered his life. At the end of his life was just an an awful mess. It's a picture of humanity. By God's design, unbelievable capacity and squandered opportunity. That's, that's this panel. When you go back through the, the list of things that, that God gave man as an endowment, as a stewardship. Speech, for instance. What do we do with it? James 3 says we curse God, blaspheme God, and we tear each other down. He says if any man can tame the tongue, he's a perfect man. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The very world of iniquity. It is hellfire and is itself set on fire by hell. That's our speech now. Think about man's creativity. We take and we rearrange the elements of what God made out of nothing and we turn them into what? Awful, putrid, wretched things. Think about man's capacity for science. This innate inquisitiveness to to discover things, to build things, to make things. If the 20th century demonstrated anything, it was not the, the victorious glory of evolution. Look how great man is. The 20th century proved that all we did with our science was create greater capacity to destroy one another. It was the most genocidal and murderous century in human history. And our technology only gave us the ability to do it more efficiently. Think about man's intellect. It's given for the purpose of the active appreciation of God. What does man do with his mind? The pursuit of every fallen pursuit and idolatry available under the sun. What does man do with his rational ability to make logical connections? Uh, Romans 1 tells us they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And man makes all these highfalutin, convoluted, logical deductions that are just not true. And it's all foolishness. What does man do with his will? This capacity to make choices uh, unlike other creatures. Well... All of that depravity in the mind and the heart works its way out into activities. What about our emotions? This built-in capacity uh, for the palette of sensibilities and feelings. What do we do with them? Um, We get them all out of order. They're, They're twisted and perverted by our sinful corruptions. And then we believe that they are the answer and the guidance for how to live out our lives. I know what Disney says. Trust your heart. Follow your heart. What a mess. Morality, this capacity for the knowledge of good and evil. Um, now we just we we want that experiential knowledge of evil. Our affections, our immortality, our responsibility or lordship or kingship over the created order—all of it's a disaster. Think about the way man stewards his environment. He worships it or he desecrates it. Where, where is the loving? Lordship that was designed as the imprint of the character of God on humanity as a sub-regent over the, over the universe. It's gone. Of course, this capacity for adoration and worship of God has been traded for the worship of self and everything else. How would we describe man's relationship to God after the fall? 
What was it? Hostile. Hostile. Yes. We are at enmity with God. What else? Broken. Is that what you said, Dina? Yes. Yep. Um, what about, so our fellowship is broken. Do you remember the, the, the closing scene of the fall? God puts a cherubim, one of those uh, creatures in, in his immediate throne room, with a flaming, spinning sword at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Can't come back in here anymore. You, you can't go back to immediate fellowship with God in your rebellious, sinful state. You can't beat it. Notice that the arrows on this chart only go one direction. There's no, go, no going back into the Garden of Eden. Not in this state. Well, what is man's relationship to sin here? Able to. What was it, Carol? Can't not sin. Okay. Uh, not able. This is the title we'll put here. Not able to not sin. So here, man was able to sin. And he did. In this state, man is not able to not sin. Think about Genesis 6-5. What is God's indictment? God doesn't get this wrong. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Uh, Well, yeah, yeah, but uh, I had good intentions. No, God says you don't. Simple man doesn't have good intentions. Every intention of the thought of his heart is only evil continually. And if you think, well, yeah, that was before the flood... Check Genesis 8. After the flood, there's only eight people that survived it, and God's assessment is the same. Man is bent and sinful from birth. The flood didn't fix it. And it rules us. And it rules us. We are slaves. We are slaves. Slaves of sin. And this gets to the doctrine of inability. So when we talk about total depravity... We mean several things. We mean universal depravity. There is no one who does not sin, except in Jesus Christ. Right? Everybody in the descent line of Adam, which is why it was interrupted at the incarnation with the virgin birth. Everybody else, sinful by nature from birth. It affects everybody. That's not all we mean by total depravity. By total depravity, we also mean every capacity, every constituent part of man is affected by sin. You can't say sin is just the outward things that I do. No, Jesus says those outward things come from the heart. And you can't say, well, my little little sister made me do it. There's no circumstance that brings about sin. Sin is me. Um, and, and, And it's not just my activities. It flows from my insides. Man's will is affected. He doesn't do what he should do. Because his desires are affected. His emotions are tainted. His affections are corrupted. He doesn't love what God loves, and he doesn't hate what God hates. Those loves and hates on the inside come out in what we do. Man's thinking is backwards. Theologians talk about the noetic effects of sin. That means the effect of sin on the brain. If you're old enough to remember the the TV commercials about drugs, there was an egg in a frying pan. Do you remember it? Yeah, yeah. Right? This is your brain, the egg. In a hot frying pan, sizzling. (laughs) This is your brain on drugs. Kids, don't do drugs, right? Um, Think about that. Um, The frying pan is sin. 
What is the brain like on sin? It doesn't think straight. It doesn't ration correctly. Man is bent against God. Listen to what Jesus said in John 3.19. Light came into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. That is an assessment of the insides that affects the rational ability on the outsides. It's why when just because somebody puts on a white laboratory coat and says they're doing the scientific method does not mean they have abandoned their presuppositions, their anti-supernaturalism, or their moral uh, uh, iniquity in order to all of a sudden be objective and speak truth. That doesn't happen. Every scientist is a human and carries into the laboratory all their anti-God commitments. And you can read about those in Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's what mankind is doing. There's no atheist on the earth. Everybody knows God exists. By creation outside, by conscience inside, by the embedded knowledge of God in the heart that God has placed there. And what does man do with all of that truth? Outside and inside. Stuff it in a box, try to sit on the lid and say, there is no God, there is no God. Or if he exists, he likes me as I am. I don't need to change. I'm going to go about my business. It's rebellion and idolatry. That is the state we are in. It is darkness. And so the third thing we mean about total depravity. Total depravity does not mean every man is as bad as he could be. It does mean every man is a sinner. Every part of man is affected And thirdly, man is not able to extricate himself from his predicament. The doctrine of inability. Jesus says to me, uh, says to to the crowd, you do not come to me because you do not have my word in you. You are unable to come. Uh, There's a number of verses in, in the chart about human inability to believe, to repent, to get out of the situation. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to walk. Uh, what can a dead man do? Okay. Something else has to happen. Um, what about man's relationship to his environment? Cursed. It's cursed. The environment's cursed. Listen, all the dirt is cursed because of the man. Um, now, the, the blessing embedded in a cursed environment is God actually says, you, you will eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it will it will yield. But you will eat bread out the ground by the sweat of your face. God told him you're going to die. But I'm going to cover your sin. And you're not going to die yet. And you actually will eat. It's just going to stink. Work's going to be hard. By the way, every job you've ever been to is cursed. The next job you're going to have, still cursed. God designed it that way. Ecclesiastes 7 said God bent the universe and nobody can straighten it. Why did he bend it? So that we wouldn't find our home here on this panel in our rebellious state. As if the creation was just going to freely yield all of its produce to rebellious mankind. Not on God's watch. What was man's relationship to man? Murder. Is that what you said? Yep. Murder. Sorry, I don't know what that word is. I murdered the spelling of the word. Disunity. Disunity. Yeah, disharmony. Um, New Testament says you are haters and haters of one another. 
There is hatred in the heart, and it spills out all over the place. Uh, our, our fellowship with one another is broken. Um, what about man's relationship to work? We talked about that a little bit already. Um, work is cursed. So the environment doesn't yield the way it was supposed to under the rulership of man, and your job is just hard. So how do we get out of this state? This is an event. Okay, this television screen represents an event. It's a dot in time. We call that dot new birth. On your panel, it's sort of the tan sections. There's a lot of words there. You can't put all of the words of the events into a dot without using microfiche. And if you don't know what that means, it doesn't matter. You couldn't read it. It's so small. You need an electron microscope to read what's there. But all of it is a point in time event. Um, the getting from panel two to panel three, or on yours from panel one to panel two, um, is not a process. It's not a process. It is a supernatural, miraculous event we call salvation. God saves. This is Ephesians 2.5. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. God made us alive. Boom. We call that regeneration or new birth. And in that one event called new birth, lots of things happen. You believe, you repent, there's justification, there's positional sanctification. Uh, your chart has all the theological words of the things that happen in that event. Your identity changes, your family changes, your belonging changes, your legal status in heaven changes, your destiny changes, everything changes in that event. And if you're a Christian... You find yourself here now in this state. The only way to get from there to here is through Jesus Christ, through new birth, through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, repentance and faith, and all that goes with it. That's how you get from there to there. Notice the arrow again only goes one direction. This is good news, right? It doesn't ever go back that way. Not according to the Bible. So now we we come to this 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 spot's weird. This panel's weird. It, all of us in this room were there post fall. We, we've all been in that state. We were born in that state. And if you're a believer here this morning, you've been rescued from that state. You actually know what it's like to be there and to be there. If, if you can remember this. Some of us may have been rescued earlier than others. Some of us, God was patient for a long time, and, and, and we have a, a, a more concrete picture of this state. But you know both worlds. This is why Paul says to the Corinthians, the, the spiritual man understands natural man stuff and spiritual man stuff. You're sharing the gospel with unbelievers? They don't understand you. You're weird. You're different. They only know the world you used to be in, but you understand them. You've been there. By the way, um, in the New Testament, this phase is called the Paleos Anthropos. Okay, that's Greek for old man. Smothers Brothers sang a song, My Old Man's a Sailor. They were talking about their dad. Okay, I've called my dad the old man. But here, Paleos Anthropos means the, the human you used to be. Why is it called the old man? Because it doesn't exist anymore. Who you were before Christ, that identity is gone. 
you are a kainos anthropos or a new man. You're in this panel. You're different. You're different than you were. But I want you to understand what's here is different, not by replacement, but it is new by addition. That's really important to understand in the Christian life. Here's why. Uh, Because the person that was you got dragged by God. So habits, patterns, history, consequences of your old man life got dragged through the gospel of your salvation into your Christian life. Um, They didn't all get eradicated. By the way, this is by God's design. I've questioned God about this. He hasn't given me the answers yet. I don't know. But God has designed it this way. Um, You didn't have to relearn to tie your shoes the day you became a Christian. You didn't have to... uh, You didn't have a new wardrobe all of a sudden. You didn't have new speech patterns automatically, although some have experienced some pretty radical conversion things. Um, I was talking to a guy this week who said, I was the most foul-mouthed dude. I got saved. I didn't even know what happened to me. I walked into work the next day and guys were swearing just like I had done the day before. And I said, hey, stop that. That's terrible. (laughs) But not everything changes right away. And if you're a Christian, you know there is a fight on in you. That that fight is a fight with your residual depravity. And what's new about you is not new by replacement, but new by addition. God has given you, as a believer, and this is all on your chart, um, new capacities, new desires. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. And with that comes the ability to fight against sin. With that comes the indwelling Holy Spirit who treats you, believer, as a temple. He comes and dwells in you. And He's jealous for the glory of God in you. And He starts stirring things up. And He's making you more like Christ from one glory to another. We talked about two weeks ago, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Holy Spirit's in you and doing stuff. That's new. He's making changes. He's eager to make you look like Christ. This is the process of sanctification that happens here. Um, But I want you to know this this is strange. This is a strange segment of your eternal existence. Most of your life will not be a fight against sin. But all of your life on this earth, Christian, will be a fight against sin. It's just a really small sliver of your existence. This is important for us when we think about um, heart language. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with this. Uh, This question I'm about to ask you, it actually was the impetus for the formation of the blue chart. And the question goes like this. I have a new heart in Jesus. And and my new heart comes from the Lord. He gave it to me. That that was a gift in salvation. Um, If God gave me my new heart, can't I trust it? Ought I trust it? Why would God give me something that was untrustworthy? Why would God give me something tainted with evil? It's a good question. It's a logical question. But we have to actually use the biblical data to get to the right answer. We could say the question this way. Um, Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceptive above all else and, and desperately sick. 
who can know it? Do, do we just constrain Jeremiah 17, 9 or Genesis 6, 5, the intentions of the thoughts of the heart, the man are only evil continually. Does that all just go right here? What about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Don't trust yourself. And the other eight verses in Proverbs that say don't trust yourself, culminating in the one who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Is that all just over here? Or does that apply over here too? Are there still things in my heart that must not be trusted? Are there still things in my heart that must be corralled and and brought under the obedience of Christ? Well, of course. We can't say, I have a new heart and therefore it's trustworthy. Now Disney makes sense. Follow your heart because I have a new heart. Listen, this new heart language is Old Testament language describing something very specific. It's the new covenant in every single passage, whether it's describing circumcision of heart or a new heart or a heart of flesh replacing a heart of stone. All of that language is embedded in promises God gave to Israel. And with that promise is the promise of land and prosperity and world peace in all of its contexts. We cannot yet say the new covenant is fulfilled. Now, does that mean we can't use new heart language? No, I think we can. Here, here's the justification for it. Um, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us about, the, about communion, the Lord's table. And Paul describes Jesus as having lifted up the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Jesus said this in the upper room. Now he's talking to 11 Jews for whom the new covenant will be literally fulfilled still in the future. But the invitation at Corinth for Gentiles to participate in this new covenant reality means that Gentiles get to benefit even now from the spiritual realities of what God will do for national Israel in the future. Right? And, and this is you can read how and why God is doing this in Romans 9 to 11. What does it mean for Gentiles like most of us? Anybody have Jewish descent? Okay, so we're all outsiders, weird, uncultivated olive trees, grafted into the rich root of the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We get to benefit in the spiritual benefits of the new covenant, even now, before the new covenant is fulfilled. So, I know that was a huge theological end around. Am I willing to use new heart language to describe what happened to me at new birth? Yes, I am. <laughs> may take a little work to get there. But yeah, I have a new heart from the Lord. Think about the, the promises, or, or excuse me, the warnings against self-trust in the book of Proverbs. Trust Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Don't trust yourself over and over and over again. That's written to people who are covenant loyal to Yahweh. That's written to people who want to listen to wisdom. It's written for believers. Believers must obey those things. Um, so Jeremiah 17.9, we just can't write off. My heart's not deceitful. Um, I can trust myself. Actually, Christian, you got work to do. Let's talk about the believer's relationship to God. How would you describe it? Reconciled. Oh, I love it. I'm going to add that to my list. Love. Love. What else? Peace. Peace. Yeah. Uh, having been justified with God, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us access to the grace in which we stand. 
What else? Gratitude. Gratitude. Oh, it better be. Yeah. Okay. Um, do we have right now with God mediated or unmediated fellowship? Do we have immediate access to God? Mediated. I heard both. <laughs> and you're right. <laughs> okay. In what sense is it immediate? Um, we don't. We don't have a priest. We don't have to go through sacrifices. The Holy Spirit dwells right in us. Your body is a temple. Uh, you go to God in prayer. You don't pray through somebody else. You don't pray to saints. You don't uh, say, hey, pray to your God for me. You, none of that stuff. We go right to God. Uh, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, cries out in our hearts that He is our Father and we are His children. Immediate access. And mediated. By that I mean we have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with deep wordish groans so that when we don't pray right according to the will of God, He fixes our prayers on the ways up, on the way up. There is mediation, and we are not yet absent from the body, present with the Lord, which is better by far. There's a day coming when we shall see Him. Faith will become sight. We will be present. God, God's everywhere, everyone. We know that. Um, but there is his special dwelling place that we will have access to we don't have yet. So, um, immediate and mediate fellowship with God. What's our relationship to sin? Able not to sin. Okay, yes. Nailed it. Able not to sin. Didn't have that ability over there. Now you have the ability in a given... We're not talking about perfection. Nobody has the ability to never sin again. But in a given moment, you have an ability by faith to trust the Lord and do what he says. You've got supernatural power to do it. Could never do it before. Not when you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now you walk by faith in the power of the Spirit of God, according to Romans 6, in resurrection life. The same kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead. Um, what about our environment? Earth is still cursed. Romans 8, until creation enjoys the unfettered benefits of the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We're not there yet. Creation is craning its neck around the corner, waiting to see what you will look like when you resemble Jesus. Environment's still cursed. Um, what about man's relationship to man? By the way, under the curse, there's still enjoyments. Right? Read Ecclesiastes. Uh, God gives work and marriage and meals and friendships for the enjoyment as a reward under the sun. Okay, So that's mixed. What about man's relationship to man? Yeah, um, it's mixed. <laughs> it's in a mixed condition, just like the human heart right now. Um, yeah, we enjoy sweet fellowship. There is uh, a, a familial communion with those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all going to be home together. Uh, we get previews of that. It's wonderful. What's man's relationship to work? Still mixed. Job you have right now, or whatever tasks the Lord has for you, it's cursed. There's grass is greener on the other side. The next job, no, that one's cursed too. Just want you to know, you're applying for the next job. That one and the next and the next, they're all cursed. Don't tell anyone, I have the best job in the world. Still falls under the Ecclesiastes 7 and Genesis 3, plan of God. Okay, um, But for a believer, work can be fun, delightful, not if you make an idol out of it. Boy, that, that gets to futility quick. But there are enjoyments in it that a Christian can have. I believe only a Christian is allowed to have fun at work. Read Ecclesiastes. Um, and it can be worship. 
You can make widgets for the glory of God. You make them for Jesus. Your boss misunderstands you, doesn't care, hates your work. Jesus loves it if you do it the right way. It's worship. And it's rewarded in heaven. So this whole panel, it's just mixed. This is a you are a weird creature as a new creature. You're not what you were. You're not what you will be. This arrow only goes one direction too. Okay, a lot of ways to get here. Um, I'm not saying there's multiple ways of salvation, but you can get hit by a truck, be absent from the body, present with the Lord, better by far, and waiting for bodily resurrection. You might be here on the earth when Jesus comes back, brings the church to himself, gives you a new body instantaneously, and never experience physical death. That's the rapture. Um, I'm not going into all the eschatological pathways here. I also have not included the eternal destiny of the unbeliever. That's another panel. And we'll talk about that some other time. But what will life be like in the eternal state? What's man's relationship to God? Immediate fellowship, joy, delight, no shame. What's man's relationship to sin? Not able to sin. Won't that be good? What's man's relationship to the environment? New heavens, new earth. No sin, no sorrow, no death, no sting, no sadness, no tears. All of it. Revelation 21 and 22. Just read it. Um, In fact, in Revelation 21, you have the statement, For the former things have passed away. Everything prior to new heavens and new earth is called former things. You know what this is? Everything else. Almost your entire existence will be spent there. And you look back on everything that were the former things, and it's like immeasurably tiny. Man's relationship to man, perfect. Man's relationship to work, only fun all the time. There will be work in heaven. Um, what is the takeaway? What, what is the big thing? If you forget everything we talked about, what are you supposed to remember? Christian, if you're a Christian, you're on this panel, and you can shepherd your heart. You have abilities you never have before. And if you're a Christian, you're on this panel, you must shepherd your heart. Because the homardiological hangover, as Dr. Zemmick called it, the, the, the residual sin in you has to be battled. And it's worth it. It's just a short time. A weird time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this survey of our past and our present and our future. Uh, we pray that you would be honored in these ladies as they seek to live out these things for your glory. Give us endurance in Jesus' name. Amen.